Hi everyone, our World Bank EdTech team is speaking with educators globally to learn how they're innovating. Today you're listening to a conversation with Valtensir Mendez, Senior Program Lead in the Division for Policies and Lifelong Learning Systems in the Education Sector at UNESCO, and Cristobal Covo, Senior Education Technology Specialist at the World Bank. They're speaking about the Global Education Coalition, a public-private partnership for education, bringing together more than 140 members from the UN family, civil society, academia, and the private sector, including coalition members, UNESCO, UNICEF, and the World Bank. Welcome to the World Bank EdTech Podcast, a conversation on the use of technology and innovation in education globally. My name is Cristobal Cobo. I'm the Senior Education Technology Specialist at the World Bank. We are very pleased to have with us today, Valtensil Mendes, Senior Program Lead in the Division of Policies and Lifelong Learning Systems in Education Sector at the UNESCO, United Nations Education Scientific and Cultural Organizations. Welcome, Val. Thank you. Thank you very much, Cristobal. It's a pleasure to be here. We are so delighted to talk to you about so many interesting things. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you very much. I'm originally from Brazil. I grew up in a rural area in which education was the only way to learn more about the world. From the very beginning, I was very appreciative of teachers that were there in that very small and rural area to try to make a difference for kids. I want to work in this field to make a difference. Education really can be a powerful tool to make social improvements. I want to work in this field to make a difference and connect with the social challenge that we have in the country. So this explains a lot of the work I have been doing for many years through charities and the UN organisms. So I'm very pleased that I'm working with colleagues that see in the same way that education is not just a theory, it's really a way to improve countries, to improve people's life. My field of interest is the impact of ICT in education, how innovation and the different kind of mood stakeholder partnerships can or not contribute to the biggest challenge we have, like the SDGs and especially sustainable development goal number four, that is dedicated to education. I've been working for about 15, 20 years in this field, supporting governments in terms of policy development, strategic plans in ICT education, but mobile learning. And during the latest years, working very closely in AI and education as well. From my perspective, what is really key is the pedagogical dimension. It's not about the technologies. In UNESCO, my current responsibilities include the coordination of the UNESCO program that is part of the Global Partnerships Education response to COVID-19. We created a consortium of grants, agents, that includes the World Bank, UNICEF, and UNESCO. I'm also leading some actions that are part of the UNESCO Global Education Coalition that we just created a couple of months ago. You have been working between 15 and 20 years in this field. How many normal years will be equivalent of a one year of COVID, would you say? Some people have been saying that we did in a couple of months the equivalent of 10 years for regular <laughs> ICT in education. But I think this question is interesting to analyze the difference between a regular 
ICT in education strategy from emergency ICT education strategy and planning. This is a very, very helpful distinction. This global education coalition. Tell us what is the goal? It sounds extremely promising. The Global Education Coalition is a platform for collaboration and exchange with the goal to protecting the right to education during this very unprecedented disruption that we are living now. But also once you go beyond COVID, we have right now 160 members from the UN family, civil society, academia, and private sector. There are organizations such as the GPE, Microsoft, for example, they have been very active working with us and partners, Blackboard, Ericsson, McKinsey, Telefonica, NGOs like Khan Academy, Sesame Workshop, Coursera, Learn Equality, Profuturo, and many more. What is important to recall here is the dimension of the crisis we are facing. In the peak of the crisis, we had over 1.5 billion learners, 91% of the world's school population, they were affected by COVID schools closure. This has a huge implication in the whole system. As the UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez warned us based on UNESCO research, we are estimating that 24 million learners at the risk of dropping out. The longer children and students remain out of school, the less likely they are to return. So we have an important issue here. UNESCO reacted very quickly in the beginning of the crisis. First, uh, by measuring you know, the impact of the school closures, how many schools were affected in which countries. It was very important to have key data, evidence-based to start working. But we saw that that was not enough. We need some concrete actions. Here was when the coalition was created you know, for trying really after a huge work in the first confinement period, like 24-7 kind of task, a lot of colleagues and different countries involved. For us, the most important is first to identify the needs of the countries. It's a coalition that is totally needs-driven. We have meetings with ministers of education to see where are the needs. And in parallel, we had important work with the members of the coalition, with meetings and work plans to see how members can uh, go and together with us and the other partners try to give some answers and uh, support this strategic planning of the countries. And what is the actionable agenda that will evolve out of this Global Education Coalition? The coalition, the first goal is to bring strategic planning, supporting governments to have a very contextualized response. Because we know we don't have a one-size-fits-all when it comes to this issue. Let's bring private and non-profits and UN organizations and let's support governments planning their response to their own crisis and context. Once we have this, we also want to draw some lessons of this experience. It's very important to keep the research very active. We are running in collaboration with the World Bank and UNICEF and other agencies some surveys to countries to see how the crisis impact them and also how we can you know, try to mitigate some future issues that the crisis might uh, cause in those contexts. So we have one line that is supporting tailored measures in the countries, other is extract lessons. And then from here, we have uh, different programs according to the country's needs. It can be 
teacher training, can be creating digital platforms, can be connecting with the radio and TV local stations to tap into their resource to give a quick response to the country's needs. You make a distinction that I really like, which is use of ICT in regular context of supporting learning and the distinction of integrating technology for remedial in an emergency context. Now, in non-emergency context, we have seen huge amount of evidence that the impact of technology varies significantly. In many cases, results are unclear, patchy, or requires a lot of uh, enabling conditions. In the current context, what are the elements that technology can be really a driving force for change? And what would be the weaknesses that we need to take into consideration the more? Among the main strengths, I'd say technology's ubiquity is a big one. This possibility to make learning potentially available and happening anytime and everywhere, the part of this lifelong learning perspective is fantastic. And we saw in some countries that they had this in, in place, they were able very quickly to respond to this crisis. First, this is a huge strength of technology when it comes to a crisis. We have from radio to AI tools that are embedded in some basic mobile phones, educational games, apps that in this moment are supporting, for example, refugee camps, students, learners with a special needs. The benefits are significant. We also have some crowdsourced projects such as Wikipedia, initiatives like Khan Academy, uh, organizations like Video Games Without Borders, systems with a strong offline functionality like Colibri, they are all making a difference and technology is part of that. However, technology by itself is not a panacea and uh, there are many weaknesses. Uh, among the weaknesses, the first one is the digital divide. We have a huge inequality in access to use and creation of technology. In this moment, we have been looking at the numbers and the lack of connectivity is really important, obviously, in the global south in our countries. And I mean by connectivity here in a broad sense. I am talking about uh, internet connectivity, but also devices and very importantly, the quality education content with proper pedagogic design. So it's not just the technology per se. In the north and in, in the rich countries, we have a huge inequality in some neighborhoods, but focusing in, in the global south or fragile conflict and violence affected context, we need more tailored alternative ed tech solutions. This is all part of the connectivity issue. The main one I mentioned in terms of digital divide. The other one is learners' privacy and data security. 41% of the countries have some data protection when it comes to students' privacy. Here, we need more work. Companies, they don't want to talk about too much. They say they are respecting, at least in Europe, but in other countries, we don't have any mechanism to ensure that this is taken into account. Their data can be linked to the health system. So you can track potentially who had COVID or not and different social implications. Data security is really key. Then we have the gender biases when it comes to AI in some platforms. What we saw, and uh, we had the research that was published through a publication called I'd Blush If I Could, that is actually a response of Siri that now is corrected. But if you would ask a not appropriate question to Siri in terms of gender issue, 
she would answer you and I'd blush if I could. So in this publication, what we found out is that the number of systems that we have in AI where the gender dimension is not taken into account or using it in a negative way is very, very high. We, and with other partners, try to work very hard in identifying what positive elements we can bring into the table to minimize these AI biases. And this can be even in terms of bringing more women to the ed tech industry that right now is very low. And this connects as well with the need to re reinforce STEM education, for example. So during COVID, we are trying to build some global learning house. That is one initiative that is part of the coalition that we want to reinforce the STEM and STEAM tasks and in capacity development for teachers, but also for learners. We want to bring programs to emphasize uh, the girls' role in this kind of STEM content because it's all connected. If you track back, this goes to the AI algorithms. In many cases, they are completely blind in terms of gender and in terms of other collective or minorities. This COVID moment is showing that, that we have so much more data available because most of the education systems went online. So all these programs are collecting this data. We need to take a look and ask for a transparent mechanism to see how the algorithms are working and how the AI is built to avoid the gender biases. However, having said that, all the negative part, I think it's not about a technophilia or technophobia. We have a moral imperative to mitigate the technology risks and using obviously do no harm principle, but also we must search for innovations that can bring solutions for this pressing challenge that we have right now. Some people say that we are living in a post-digital world, meaning that the digital is so ubiquitous for some sectors of the society that we should rely not only on the digital, but in a much more transversal because it has been incorporated in our life. But of course, that's not the reality for many. I was wondering if the coalition is considering technologies that are not only based on the internet. Yeah, definitely. This is a very key issue for us and for all colleagues working on this issue. For the coalition, from the very beginning, it was very important to work with no tech solutions. So we are talking about even paper-based materials. So for us, it's no tech low tech, very important, for example, initiatives that can be offline. There are some organizations like Learning Equality or Sesame Workshop. They are sending hard disks with content to some ministries of education or education providers so they can, from through different channels, disseminate that resource. So very important to think about the offline dimension as well. And then we have the high-tech solutions that some systems can use and we can combine. But I think the issue here and the main takeaway is this combination of multimedia and multimodal delivery systems that includes radio, TV, with text messaging, SMS, WhatsApp, social media, and printed-based materials. An example of a multimodal work that I've been seeing and I think a very interesting one is how Sesame Workshop, this NGO that has a lot of educational content, how they are using their content. They are shipping some hard disks to some ministries of education. 
and that the program they are developing is combined with some WhatsApp messages. So basically, you can watch some of those educational programs and you have a, a telephone number that you can engage with the program, let's say, through WhatsApp. And I think it's a very interesting way to combine different technologies. This program can be broadcast through a, a national TV channel, but also we can have a podcast with the same modality in which we can give the podcast to a radio station and we also can combine with some SMS that has been previously arranged by the government or local community that can be free for learners and teachers. Another example is an NGO that has a, a platform called Colibri. Colibri can be installed and its content can be available to very low, low-tech uh, environments. So you can actually download it in a machine and you can work it in a completely offline way. But at the same time, you have other uh, dimension of this platform that are, for example, right now trying to use AI to do a matching between the contents that are available in that platform with national curriculum. So this system use AI to try to do this mapping, to facilitate and offer to a minister of education, for example, from all the contents that are available, for example, open education resource OER available, which ones are more suitable for the national curriculum. This platform is using AI and also human intelligence to contrast the AI to offer these kind of solutions. It's interesting because there are models that can go from a very low-tech or no-tech solution to using something very, I would say, sophisticated such as AI. We have enough research already that shows that just broadcasting content without any kind of pedagogical program, it doesn't work. So we need, when we do a radio program or a TV program for the current situation, we need to have this inside the pedagogical framework in which we can do a proper follow-up. If it's with a, a toll-free messaging system, fantastic. If not, we need to uh, talk to the local providers to implement some zero-rating solution in terms of lines for students and parents and communities. We cannot just rely on the broadcasting. The GPE consortium program in some regions, we are printing materials. One of our components is printing out the 60,000 education materials and deliver to some specific community. The emphasis is that is reaching out to the most marginalized. We should have this equity proof design in these kind of programs, obviously. I have the impression that 10 years ago, a lot of policymakers were asking, what is the best technology for learning? And today I have the feeling that the pandemic is bringing us to adjust this question a little bit. As you are saying, what is the best combination of different technologies or what is the ecosystem of solutions that we can offer, understanding that different communities will have different tools, uh, different access, different infrastructure. You mentioned strategy. What are the non-technological challenges that can be address tackled by this coalition? Maybe the main one will be to keep the current momentum of partners' engagement. Now we have the crisis. We really need to generate a social movement to expand the right to education. So it addresses uh, the need, for example, uh, for connectivity, access and creation of important 
quality educational resource. We started already working on UNESCO. We, we want to create an international declaration for the right to connectivity, adding to human rights, because we believe that connectivity and the crisis is showing you know, in that connectivity in a broad sense has shifted from a, a nice to have to a must have. I'm not talking about fancy technologies. I'm talking about any kind of way that we can introduce to make this connection between learner and the education system and the teacher and the community. For us, it's an important challenge. I don't know if you saw during the peak of the crisis some pictures of children climbing trees to have internet connectivity. For me, that was so powerful to see those images in social media and see how children is actually using trees is their learning environment because they want to connect. So these kind of, let's say, images as a reality for many, many of our learners, that connectivity to internet is not a reality. And I think we need, as a global society, we need to, to fight on that, bring resource to that. Linked to that in terms of non-technological challenges, I would say the investment in education and uh, our uh, ADG in education, our assistant director, she has been very strong calling governments, calling international organizations to keep investing in education in this moment. Because as, as we know, we already were you know, in a crisis before this one in terms of learning outcomes. We were not achieving what we supposed to. In this moment, we are concerned that this can be even worse. So I would say let's bring partners together to keep high investment in education. Let's talk for a moment about teachers, our superheroes, our first liners. When I saw this at the beginning of the pandemic, massive applauses in different cities and countries applauding the health sector. I was very happy with it, but I was also feeling that we could have done the same with teachers. So our first liners in the pandemic, and they still are in many cases, how can we bring them into this challenge? And how can we help them cope with this crisis? Because they have a lot of pressure. They have their own kids. They have to teach remotely in many cases. They might not be trained or receive all the training and support for doing that. They feel the pressure, the anxiety, they need to deliver. And at the same time, they want to be part of the solution. So how can they be supported and what sort of skills will benefit them the most? It's a key question. I totally agree with you that when we have this big manifestation support on the health system and we should do it, I think we had other heroes there, our teachers, and we should do the same. Teachers, they have been doing an incredible job during this time. We saw that during the pandemic, during the peak, we had 63 million primary and secondary teachers impacted. In many cases, they have this double duty of looking after their own children, sharing computers, at the same time teaching or trying to teach online from one day to another. This incredible flexibility, you know, as a capacity to adapt to some sort of ever evolving situation is an important one. The crisis highlights that uh, we need change in initial and uh, in service teacher education. So we need reform and we knew before, but with the crisis, we are seeing, I think, even stronger than before. Among the skills required, the key one that we are seeing is resilience. We need to really reinforce those elements that are linked to the resilience capacity skills. Leadership, this sense of be able to lead in the learning process is key. Creativity, 
the pedagogical flexibility as we saw to reinvent, readapt previous learning. And then here we come to the basic ICT skills and the ICTs again with this vision of multimedia, no multi delivery systems, teachers. We need to support them to learn about radio, TV, SMS, and the classic ICT because in any moment they might need to know. And I think we are moving towards a potential hybrid education system in which we use more of these technologies. I think this would be good because it would improve the resilience of the system. And the other skills, I would say the capacity to design these learner-centered practices using ICT, digital literacy, and data assessment to support the curriculum and enable more individualized learning or personalized learning that we have been working on before the crisis. The key is to have this set of skills that are defined together with the teaching community. So we need to integrate the lessons that comes out of this crisis. So they need to come to us, the teaching community, and say, look, I saw that I need this skill in, in particular. So let's do that. And also, as I mentioned before, have a sort of pro-equity design that we embed in the set of skills this capacity to reach out to the, the most marginalized. That is something that most teachers have. They want their the students to learn. Maybe we need to be more intentional on that and make something more explicit when we revisit the skills needed. And I would suggest colleagues to take a look in the International Task Force on Teachers for Education 2030, that they have a call for action on teachers. There are interesting elements there that can move the discussion ahead. It's very important to have this digital skills, this readiness in terms of education system. The countries that have the education readiness in place, South Korea is a good example, they were able to move very quickly to a distance learning environment and they were able to give a response to keep students learning very, very quickly. This is thanks to the readiness of the system because the teachers had a high level of digital skills, the students, obviously equipment. So there is a whole ecosystem in terms of readiness that allow them to give this very fast response. We have highlighted so many challenges, so many of the things that we need to address, how to reduce the inequalities. Based on what you have seen so far, what could be some of the promising experiences to share or potential positive and expected consequences of this pandemic? Let's try to find where's the light in this difficult time. Yeah, I think this is a very good idea. And I would start first with an experience that we have in Senegal. We developed in the framework of the coalition strategies. We brought together partners from hardware companies, software, and local telephone operators, the government, obviously. And together we designed a very contextualized and distance learning strategy. Of course, it's, it's not perfect. It was done very quickly, but has been proved very, very successful to, to have all the elements together from teacher training, to the devices, to the capacity development of other personnel of the education system. And uh, why am I stressing this experience? I think because it's totally local needs-driven approach. And uh, as I mentioned before, not a one-size-fits-all model. I think this is important to keep in mind when we design this kind of interventions. 
another one moving to another part of the world. In the Caribbean, we have uh, a master trainers capacity building program that we are implementing with Blackboard. What we did with them was trying to have a platform agnostic approach. So what we ended up doing is we deliver a training that is introductory, some basics in what we mean by distance learning planning and the digital skills. And then these master trainings from 20 countries in the region, they would uh, scale this, uh, uh, this training to other, to their own communities. And something interesting happening here in other regions is that these initiatives that are designed with so many partners, they are working as a seed initiative. So this seed initiative is collaborating to bring other funds. They are attracting more investment and they are developing more, I would say, an ecosystem of innovation that right now is trying to give answers. This is an important aspect. And the positive and expected consequence of the crisis, I believe this global crisis has been a wake-up call to recognize the importance of education in our societies, to shed, for example, some light, some new light on the digital gaps that we discussed earlier, the need of connectivity, for example. No? The second one is the resilience uh, in terms of our education system. I think the crisis is building more resilient teachers and is, I think is maybe preparing us for, for future crises. No? So I think this can be positive as well. And other unexpected consequence can be the number of multi-stakeholder partnerships no, that we are seeing. And we can observe, for example, survey fatigue in many countries because they are in a stressful situation and they keep being asked by UNESCO, UNICEF, the World Bank and other agencies to answer surveys. And I think we came together and we developed a good program that uh, is supporting that. This is a good outcome. And I hope we can move ahead in this direction to have more combined actions among the different agencies. The other potential positive consequences is the engagement of parents, the communities in the learning process, not to support teacher and the teacher profession. I think they need to be acknowledged, the better salaries, clear career pathway. In many countries, we don't have it. All this, when also, as you mentioned, that social emotional support is key. And I think the crisis might contribute for us, the education community, to look at these professionals and try to support and also engage them in a more constructive dialogue with their local communities. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you for bringing the light in difficult times and showing us the horizon in which things can look better after this pandemic. This is something that we are looking forward to see. I am totally with you that these are building blocks for a new infrastructure that we think and we hope will, will benefit most. So what if a country or an institution would like to be involved in the Global <laughs> Education Coalition? What is the string that they have to pull? What is the content they have to address? That would be fantastic it's just to, to go online and, and type Global Education Coalition altogether dot UNESCO dot org. And there you see an email you can write to us and we'll be very happy to have you on board because we need much more hands. So we always close our interviews with sharing materials a book, podcast, that guide your pathway? The book I would recommend is a thriller with some interesting ethical questions regarding AI. It's not new, has been here for a couple of years, and it's called Origin by Dan Brown. 
it's fun. It takes you in a moment that we cannot travel too much, nor or cannot travel <laughs> to, to Bilbao, to Barcelona, to the Guggenheim Museum. And very interestingly, it takes you to a, a local university in Barcelona that has a supercomputer. And this supercomputer has an AI system. And a lot of things happen. I don't want to be a spoiler, but I think it's a very interesting, entertaining option. And moving to the podcast. So here we get something more serious. I would recommend a UNESCO podcast that we have that is COVID-19 Response Toolkit. It's a podcast that is about this collaboration we are doing with McKinsey and company. There are eight chapters that provide very interesting response in terms of supporting countries to design their own strategy. We have examples and we have some tactical action checklists to support governments and policymakers. And what is good about that approach is that it can be used regardless of uh, response stage. So basically it's modular and you can choose which chapter works better for your case. How can we find that podcast? Google UNESCO COVID-19 Toolkit. If not, you go to the globaleducationcoalition.unesco.org and you'll find there as well. Okay, fantastic. And I love that you offer us opportunity to travel cheap without any health risk and, yeah. and explore other worlds. That's fantastic. And what would you say is the key message that you would like to share with listeners in this difficult time? Let's work together to avoid this generational catastrophe that is 24 million children that might not go back to school. We build this on top of more than 600 million of children that were not learning the basics, you know, in numeracy and literacy. Join us if you can join UNESCO, the World Bank, any international local organization to support our work to try to find solutions and to avoid this, at least these 24 million children and making them engage back to the education system. And let's hope this doesn't come true. No? We never had a better opportunity in terms of challenge, a global challenge to work together, to bring partnerships. And uh, also remember to continue you know, our tasks in terms of SDG4. We have less than 10 years to make a more inclusive and equitable quality education and try really making lifelong learning a, a reality for all. So yeah, let's join force and continue working together. Thank you both for your ideas, for your leadership and the work that you are doing is extremely helpful these days. We are extremely happy that we can help to disseminate the work that you guys are doing and let's use this as an excuse to keep collaborating. Fantastic. No, thank you very much for the opportunity. It was a great discussion and looking forward to continuing.